You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Isabel Elliott is a composer and musician from Tower Hamlets, now based in Gerloch. Recently, Rufus has worked with Sound Festival Scotland, Red Note Ensemble, Magnetic North and the Nevis Ensemble. Rufus produces Overat, a trans, non-binary and gender diverse music making world, which encompasses live touring projects, recordings, workshops and online learning resources. The first Overat EP was released in March and Overat number one was shortlisted for a Scottish New Music Award. Hello, how's it going? All right. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have you with us. So you launched Overat back in 2020. What was it that spurred you on to start this project? And could you tell us a little bit about how it all started? Yeah, um, uh, I guess in some ways it's a really long story. I started organising sort of queer spaces and queer artistic spaces maybe more than a decade ago now um, and just sort of putting together events and and found that it did quite a lot to sort of uh, create a little community and start conversations. And and I suppose in 2019 or so, I was feeling like I was thinking a lot about gender and queerness and um, and transness and in my music and in my work. And, and I felt frustrated that there wasn't more of a space to talk about that, that, you know, very often in my, like, professional life is quite uh, rare that I'll do a project and not be misgendered at any point during that or um, things like that or not be asked um, sort of invasive questions or, you know, like things that are not necessarily ill-intentioned but just mean that you never get to sort of get deeper into the conversation because you're sort of stuck at this point where you're explaining yourself and you're um, explaining about the community and some of the issues that you face and so you're kind of trapped and you can't do more sort of expansive creative things um so I suppose the idea was to try and start that space and see what I could learn and what we could all learn if we sort of looked at it more as a community and yeah kind of uh started to come across a few pieces that I thought like yeah this is part of it this is part of it okay like there's a little constellation of people Sarah Henney's piece Contralto um I saw Robbie Blake perform completely by chance at Tramway around the time that I was thinking about this and got in touch with them. And just like a few little things that were coming together that made me think like, okay, there's there's enough of a body of work here that you can sort of build on. Your first gig was just in the nick of time, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and everyone thought I was a right doomsday prophet going around saying like, God, I really hope that we get to do this gig before everything gets shut down. And everyone's like, oh no, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I was like uh-huh like three days later total lockdown yeah game over <laughs> <laughs> so the overall uh, 2021 season is focusing on voice why have you chosen to focus on the voice for this season and how are you featuring it within the work you do yeah um this is something that um i guess you get a lot of identity sort of stuff that's like we all have a certain like identity and we're making work around that but with transness it's you often see things that are like five trans singers whatever and it doesn't really like tell you why that might be interesting or important or what the sort of transness might have to do with the voice and I guess I sort of became aware while I was sort of starting to put together the project that there are a lot of different ways that gender and the voice interact it can be like a bit of a source of dysphoria for some people like Maybe your voice doesn't match up with how you imagine it to be. Maybe you, like, uh, if you go on testosterone, then your voice might break. And so then um, at some point during your life after puberty, your voice is going to get lower um, when you go through a sort of second trans puberty. Uh, or if you're broadly trans femme, you might, uh, your voice may have broken due to 
um, having high levels of testosterone when you're a teenager, but going on estrogen doesn't affect your voice at all. It might sort of change the timbre because your fat will redistribute and things like that, but it's not going to change like the pitch. Your voice won't unbreak. So then there's sort of um, different vocal therapies and things like that that um, trans women and trans femmes sometimes do or sometimes don't do. And um, at the sort of extreme, some people undergo vocal surgery. So there's kind of like a big range of, uh, of sort of physical experiences of the voice. And that's to say nothing of people who maybe just uh, want to work to embrace their voice the way that it is. And then I suppose once you've got that sort of like physical background, the next layer is kind of over the last five years, trans stories have kind of appeared in the mainstream a lot more, but they're very rarely told by trans and non-binary people. It's very often uh, a cis vision of what what those stories might be like and very often say like in the press there's hardly any trans journalists certainly not like sort of regular columnists or anything like that so the ability to sort of speak and be heard as a trans person is like it's quite a rare thing it's not something that you can kind of take for granted so I guess then the, the sort of physical experience of voice and gender in the body sort of binds together with what stories we can tell and how we can kind of be heard and that's uh, that's what was really important about about the idea of the voice in Overat. And from there, it's kind of like as open-ended as you can possibly be. Like something can explore the voice without involving any singing at all. Some people who have come into the project have wanted to sing. Some people have not wanted to sing. Some people have done sort of spoken stuff or maybe like done workshops where they've explored the voice but in private and not ultimately shared any work that they made from that. So it's kind of, uh, it's a very open-ended question, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite a long explanation. Now you know all about like the medical history of like trans voices. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was very interesting. Very interesting. So, so just, um, I'm just curious, the, um, the work that's featured then in the programme, is that work that's already been written or is it work that's, that's been written with, that sort of the theme of the voice in mind for Overat, if that makes sense. Yeah, so in Overat 1, um, the first ever gig that we did, there was this piece, Contralto, by Sarah Hennies, which was a pre-existing work that I, like, some point during maybe 2019 had become aware of, and it's uh, kind of set through the sort of vocal therapy that trans women may or may not undergo, there was this piece, Silent, um, which is actually a reinterpretation of 433 by John Cage um, as a kind of protest piece where a trans woman is standing on a plinth in a, one of the famous parks in Berlin, I don't remember which one, um, and it's kind of a, she's silent for four and a half minutes, but it's like a, a very active silence. She's got like a load of microphones pointing at her and she's like standing there not saying anything. And it's, yeah, really beautiful piece. Um, and then Robbie Blake did a kind of reimagining of one of their pieces to sort of suit the group of voices that were involved. Um, and I had a peace of mind that I suppose I was starting to think about it when I was starting to think about Overat. So I guess the two are quite like merged. And then since since getting some funding and stuff to continue the project, uh, everything that we've done since then has been sort of newly commissioned pieces um, sort of made with the with the brief in mind. So we're going to listen to Are We by Malin Lewis, the first track from the EP Folk Songs. Could you tell us a little bit about the track before we have a listen? Yeah, uh, this was a, a piece that um, I commissioned from Malin, especially for the EP. And when we first sort of spoke about they're maybe making something, they're a piper and a traditional musician, and they were kind of like, well... I guess I can make a pipe tune <laughs> and I was like yeah cool do that and I guess over the course of like six months it sort of uh, morphed into like I guess they were thinking more and more about how they could use their voice and um, and so you've got like the drones that they're making sort of vocally rather than with the pipes and the text is kind of, is coming from these vocal therapy exercises that I mentioned that are sort of designed to help you raise your voice and sound just sound higher and sound more femme or more conventionally femme I'm doing like air quotes <laughs> yeah awesome cool. 
amazing how poetic those phrases are um are they like the what you were saying about um like the exercises is that literally just verbatim what the exercises are or was it kind of manipulated uh i think it starts from so the the many moons many miles i think that is from uh like an actual set of exercises it's almost like elocution lessons and it often involves class politics and like the aim isn't just to make you like sound more like a woman in quotations, but also to make you sound like a, a white middle-class woman. So it's kind of like that it's the way that you pronounce the words that makes you sound more like a woman. And then after, after the initial sort of half a dozen phrases, then they start going off onto some other, like then it becomes their own sort of a riff on it where they're uh, exploring their own questions about that process of speech therapy and what their gender is sort of like for them. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you approach curating the music when it encompasses such a wide variety of styles and genres? Yeah, in a way, it's almost the opposite. It's like, it's kind of like the sort of basic idea, sort of creative idea was about like this idea of folk songs and like a trans living tradition. Um, And I guess having started from there, it, it definitely didn't make sense to go and find all the classical trans composers and get like classical 
new classical pieces, it definitely made sense to go and find people with like really different ways of approaching music. And so that's where you've got someone who's like completely a traditional musician, uh, someone who does like DJing and sort of uh, is more of a producer. And you've got uh, someone who does like punk music. And I guess there's like the sort of background of experimental music or sort of classical music that's sort of me thinking about it or like setting up this situation but then within it trying to encompass as many different approaches and worlds as possible because I mean no no project like that is ever going to sort of find the full breadth of what is in the community but that felt like a good starting point if everyone's got sort of different musical modes then it's just opening up the conversation a lot more and and opens up a lot more possibilities so it was kind of rather than like being like oh no I've got all these different styles how am I going to put it together it was like, how can I get all these different styles yeah. so that it comes together as this thing? <laughs> yeah. Um. So moving on to some of your own music, um, Sexual Signs for Solo Violin is a three-movement piece that you've been working on with violinist Harry Gorski-Brown. Can you give us a bit of background on the project? Yes. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> well, I started working on the piece in 2018 and... I hadn't really been working on any music. I hadn't been in the sort of music world for maybe like a year, year and a half. And I guess at that point there were certain experiences when I was coming back into music and really wanted to be back in and able to make music um, that I needed to think about and needed to write about in order to sort of get past the the barrier that was sort of keeping me away from it. And uh, and so I began working on pass what became pass and and that was a really I guess it's kind of a cliche to say that it was something that you were kind of compelled to to make and it wasn't really I didn't sort of set out with a vision or I didn't know what it was that I was trying to do but over the course of whatever the six months that I worked on it this thing kind of emerged and then kind of by chance a couple of other violinists were I was supposed to be making work for Dara Morgan and for Harry Gorski Brown and so I kind of knew that like it would have been it would have been weird for me to pretend that I hadn't written past and then make these other pieces. So they kind of became like one piece, all thinking about different aspects of of this thing that I that I, I guess I needed to like hold in my music a bit. And yeah, I finished it in sort of the first lockdown um, was when I finished the last the last movement. And it felt like yeah, a little bit end of an era kind of thing. It's like a good a good few years work in this thing. So yeah. How does it feel working on something for for so long? Like <laughs> when you actually finish it, like <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of in that place right now because this piece is that that's coming up. Um, at, um, ams. I also began working on that like two years ago, and I've mainly worked on it like most days this year, and it's like kind of hard to I guess it's just really hard to let go of something and kind of accept it for what it is yeah. and be like okay well you know those those imperfections are part of the piece and you know <laughs> um I don't know it's it's weird and I guess when I started the, the solo violin piece I didn't I guess you don't really know where it's going to take you or where you're going to end up so it's you know something that you started and then by the time you finish it everything about your life has changed and you're kind of there holding this thing like but it's it's kind of nice for me because it's kind of like when I when I look at the score or when I hear the music it kind of takes me to that place that I was writing about and like um especially the last movement of Peace of Horizon is really about um this romance that I had in the Highlands and when I and it was this really particular sort of moment there was a big drought it was sunny every day it's just a really odd summer and it takes me like not only to that summer, but also to like the winter when I was writing the piece. And I don't know, like if you've found that with pieces that the music is very powerful to sort of take you to a certain place or memory or something that you associate with it. Yeah, it's kind of like when you you smell something that yeah you exactly only had in one place or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you smell like baking bread and it reminds you of home. Or yeah. yeah. It's really like a immediate association. Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
we had a wee nosy at the score and um, the score is written almost like a, a vocal part with words given in the form of lyrics under the violin part. Although these words are never spoken or heard, how does this text inform the performer and in turn the listener? Yeah, uh, this is something that I, I guess, was just another problem that I kind of had to solve to get back into, into doing music. I studied a degree in English and in my final year I wrote a dissertation about um, the music of Jennifer Walsh. Um, and in particular, this opera of hers, um, XXX, Live New Girls. I don't know if you come across that piece. Um, it's uh, it's like an, a kind of one-act opera, but it's all performed by Barbie dolls. And I kind of got a hold of this score, and I didn't kind of know at that point that it was going to be quite important to me. But like in that score, there's also sort of... Um, words that are written in the score or that the performers are like typing out during the piece that that sort of reveal the story um it's a piece about sexual violence between intimate partners and so like the story between the sort of main couple is only really revealed in the in the score and only the performers really know which is um kind of amazing because i suppose we have the sort of idea that when you go to see a piece, especially like, I think like theatre and opera and stuff, we really want to like feel involved with the action and like maybe we want to imagine ourselves as like we want to identify with the protagonist or we want to react against it or we want to like feel some kind of catharsis through it. And I really liked that by doing this um, and sort of keeping it secret, she's kind of saying like, no keep out it's none of your business you know this is uh <laughs> this is this is private and you don't get to feel righteousness or something on behalf of these characters but in in this piece by Jennifer Walsh you don't get to feel that it kind of asks you to know that you need to like stay out of it and not be sort of putting yourself like in every situation like that and i guess that idea of privacy was really important to me and then it kind of also go sort of back further in the the origins of that. You've got things like the sort of fluxus text scores and that, that was sort of a movement in, I guess, contemporary art as well as music and performance art, where you'd have uh, a set of written instructions rather than like a notated score. And they're kind of presented a bit like a recipe often. It'll be like, um, there's one by BC Forbes that I really like that's called become invisible and it's just a list of instructions so it's like one by hiding yourself two by divesting yourself of all individual characteristics three by running away four by like all of these things um and it gets sort of um more and more imaginative so maybe like the the first flux of scores are like a really direct instruction so it'll be like play this note for a period of time and then stop and then maybe it becomes like, during this piece, shout at the sky or whatever. You know, like it's really like it kind of starts to get more and more sort of um, far-fetched. And then in this become invisible sort of number seven or something is by ceasing to exist. So it kind of takes you from like instructions that you could potentially follow to something that's more like imaginative. It's more of like a story that it sort of asks you to imagine rather than a piece that it's asking you to play. So it sort of changes how it positions you. So rather than being like this person who's like being ordered by this score to perform a certain action, you're encountering a sort of imaginative world. And I think that's like another really powerful thing about what Jennifer Walsh is doing in that Barbie opera piece and something that I wanted to sort of bring forwards. So the sexual science for solo violin, a lot of what I kind of needed to write about was... Um, around sort of uh, sexual violence and intimate violence. And I guess I wanted to think about how I could write about that and still respect myself, the performers and the audience. Um, so it had to be some way that the performer can relate to the music, but one that is more private for them as well. So like I've got privacy in that I've put these words in the score, but they're you know, it's not like it's being sung. It's not like being sort of broadcast to the audience. 
but the performer can read it and the performer can kind of encounter it on their own terms and interpret it on their own terms and let it sort of shape the performance, maybe through like the rhythm or the like emotions. Like there's some like kind of fundamental, I don't know if when you learned like rhythms and stuff, we were taught words to help you like remember how the how the different kinds of rhythms go. And then again, like if the audience has this text and it's printed, rather than being uh, sung or spoken or like projected on the wall or anything like that, it gives them a sort of agency because you're not a sort of uh, receiver of the text. It's not being sort of like uh, done to you. It's more like something that you have the power to encounter in some way. Like you could glance at it and be like, whatever. Or you could be like a bit more curious and you could like read it and be like, okay. Or you could be like, you know, being with your literary interpretation hat and try and like figure out what the story is. So there's kind of like um, sort of different levels of engagement that you have to kind of choose. Like I can't choose them. I suppose quite often when you get similar themes, I guess, in things like opera or like it can be like, great, now we're going to have like the loudest possible music and the soprano is going to wail and it's going to be like, it's going to feel really emotional and it kind of like happens to you and you don't, you know what I mean? You don't get as much sort of choice in it. Does that make some sense? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny how there's tropes in opera, isn't there? There's like definitely like a kind of, you know, this is the moment where you have to you have to feel like everything's just letting go, like at the climax of the opera and stuff. So it's quite uh-huh. quite interesting subverting that completely and just not allowing people to, well, not not allowing, but just keeping it quite yeah uh, open. So in terms of the composition process, um, how do the text and the music interact? Was the text written first as a starting point um, and then you set the text for the violin or were they sort of created together um, in tandem? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both, <laughs> I guess. Uh, well, with the solo violin piece, I had this, I'd had this text published about, you know, it was kind of like a personal essay kind of style and it, it was sort of being published around the time that I was thinking about writing this piece. And so I did kind of go back into that and look for words that I could use. But then the text kind of grew based on what words I could respond to musically and sort of how they could fit together. And so the the sort of final musical text is kind of a combination. It's like maybe started with like a load of words and I tried setting them and some of them fit and some of them didn't. And then you scrap a load of it and then like once you've done that you've got maybe got a piece <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's I guess it's yeah it's just both and it they kind of grow together you know like if you think of like any of that sort of uh the the example that I find useful is like sort of 60s 70s American like new folk kind of stuff where you've got someone like Bob Dylan who knows like all the tropes of like he knows like so many folk songs he can pick a phrase from any folk song stick it in his work without it really having any effort because the words and the music are quite like and the same with like the sort of blues legacy that he's got like the words and the music are kind of like bound up together so by playing a certain kind of music it kind of uh leads to the conclusion that he's going to sing a certain kind of word I'm not sure about vice versa, but you know, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, that, that, that it's not, they don't exist separately anymore. They're kind of like bound up in a tradition together. It was interesting um, seeing the score because I'd, I'd heard pass on your SoundCloud and had seen the, the text, but I hadn't realised until I'd seen the score that it was actually, you know, written in, underneath. And as I was listening and following the score, like the the text underneath made sense, like, that word does sound like that. It, 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 it was like, it li- almost like it could be sung, you know, it was like really good text setting for violin. <laughs> do, you, do, you know, do you know what I mean? It wasn't just like, here's a phrase and here's a sentence that sort of correlates emotionally. Like the words really did sort of make sense with what the violin was doing. I was like, nice one, Rufus. <laughs> Thanks. Quite yeah. interesting as a performer, sort of, you know, when you see text written like that, you instantly think of how you would interpret the text. You know, even though I don't like, I'm nowhere. You know, I would never sing in front of anyone. <laughs> um, but like, I still could see, like, oh yeah, that's how. You know, I think it's what you're saying as well. Like, you can see how something could be phrased yeah. in like different ways, even just from the same text. So it does become like quite like the emphasis and the yeah. yeah. 
I know what you mean.
take it you recorded the the field recording yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's nice we like it's kind of like we um bookends. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the pacings. Yeah. It's just like, I oh, sorry. I'm just gonna shower you with compliments. But I think the pacing is great. Like. It feels really like every time that sort of a field recording comes in, it feels like you get the sort of rest point before then going into the next mm. part. Yeah, it's weird. It was kind of like an intuitive, like a really intuitive like composition process because I didn't record any of those things thinking that they were going to be in this piece. Like the the tent is like midwinter in Noida and it was belting it down. And me and my partner at the time were like, you know, obviously it's dark for like, 14 hours and we just lay in this tent for 14 hours being like anxious and damp and miserable and it was belting it down and I was like I'm so bored I'm gonna record some rain on the tent and then like you know six months later I was like oh now I know why why we were bored and miserable and sad in this tent in noise hut. and <laughs> I, I want to say that it's self-inflicted if you went camping <laughs> in the middle of winter That's... yeah that was, that was classic it was, it was a typical move <laughs> yeah I have to say like we've because we've had like we've looked at quite a few scores of, of various composers, and I just find it fascinating seeing what people like put into their scores. And I think Rainy Tent is up there, yeah. like, one of the best sort of you know inclusions in a score um, I've ever seen. Very naff. Very naff. <laughs> I feel like we've missed an opportunity because we've um, we've went camp in the past couple of years um, in summer, and every year we've been caught in a yellow weather storm and we've had like, to pack the tent up and get in the car in the middle of the night that's yeah. alright though because like the other danger if you go camping in summer is that you there are so many midges that it sounds like rain on the tent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you want to be somewhere in between those two extremes <laughs> basically <laughs> so have you got anything coming up that you would like to plug yes I shall I shall plug three albums uh which are um, firstly the Overat EP, Folks Songs, uh, which was released in March. Um, and you can go to the Overat Bandcamp to listen to it. And uh, there's also the um, Sexual Science for Solo Violin album, um, which will be coming out over the winter, which uh, now that you've heard the, the greatest hit from it, it's, uh, <laughs> um, you'll, have to, uh, you'll have to check that out as well. And then finally, a piece that you're uh, about to hear, Ah, um, Am's Come Ashore Turnover, um, is going to be released as a digitally and as a cassette by the Glasgow tape label Glark. Um, and it's coming out in November. So, yeah, check them all out. So go, go, go. <laughs> so to play you out, we're going to hear Achilles Liar with the Silver Bridge and Everything, which is part of Ah, Am, Am's. Would you like to tell us anything about it before we listen? Sure. Um, Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ams is a, a sort of one-act play, I guess, that happens in music that I've been working on over the last couple of years. And in the piece, the setup is sort of that there's this character, Ah Am Ams, and this character called Er Er Er, and going forever down this eternal beach and one of the images that sort of kept coming up for me over the winter, I would like go off on, on my bike to the beach at Openan and the beach at Red Point and all these like kind of famous beaches in the northwest that are normally like you get a lot of visitors there. And over the winter, whilst there was a lockdown, um, it would be completely deserted and I'd like go for runs on the beach, go skin dipping, go for a run on the beach and then cycle home really really cold <laughs> um and uh it sort of put me in mind of this scene in in uh the Iliad because the thing that's kind of amazing about the Iliad in a way is that so much of it takes place on the beach for some reason I find that really strange and there's this scene where Odysseus and a few other people are coming to to basically like try and persuade Achilles to uh come back to the war He's been refusing to fight and they're trying to come and persuade him to rejoin the battle because um, it's not going well without him. And in the text, it says that they find Achilles on the beach, uh, delighting his heart with a pure tone lyre, um, which is somehow just a really strange sort of moment where this like famous warrior is not doing any fighting or any killing. And he's like sitting on the beach, making music 
and this yeah the character of Achilles kind of just made his way into the into the piece and this is sort of where we just see him there and this is the music that he's playing in that moment <laughs> 